0: This morning, we turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading this morning verses 24 through 32. This would bring to an end our study in the first chapter. And just to pick up the, the connection, Paul had been speaking in the preceding verses, how that men, even with God's revelation, re- revealing the truth of himself in their conscience, in nature... They rejected God's word. They would not entertain the knowledge of God. They did not see it fit to retain God in their knowledge. And so verse 24, we pick up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. These verses of our text continue to outline the horrific features of the wrath of God on those who would have nothing to do with God. The central idea of this passage is that God abandons humankind to their sins when they are insistent on rejecting him. In fact, as many as three times, that is verses 24, 26, 28, we're told that in consequence of men distorting and dismissing the truth of God, God gave them up. And in what follows, Paul, in graphic terms, describes the extreme depths of depravity into which a person or a people can descend when they reject God. Now, throughout history, God has ever, ever been abandoning people to their sinful desires in response to their continued impenitent rebellion against him. Psalm 81 verses 11 and 12 records the Lord as saying, My people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. That God gives up people to their sinful ways, to their sinful lusts is expressed in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 31, as they're eating the fruit of their own way and having their fill of their own devices. Acts chapter 14 and verse 16 says that in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And to bring it a little closer home, 2 Thessalonians chapter 11 and verse 12 says of those who refuse the love of the truth so as to be saved, that God therefore sent them a strong delusion So that they may believe what is false, and in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Just to clarify, we pointed out in Sunday School this morning that when we read passages like these, we are not to read it from the standpoint of saying, Well, okay, God sits here, and in cruel fashion, he says, I'm going to harden this person's heart, and I'm just going to condemn them, condign them to hell. What the Word of God teaches is that if a person is insistent on following a path of rebellion against God, a course of sinning against God, God will in fact help them out. God will in fact give them exactly what they want. And that is what we find here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 as well as our text this morning. And as regards those, God gives over to their sinful desires, all the while they're living it up, reveling in their lusts. Little do they realize that what they mistakenly consider to be their freedom, their liberation, is in fact God's wrath upon them. You see, it's not just a matter of God permitting them to go on in their sins. The fact is, in So permitting them, he's at the same time punishing them. So even though they might have the thrills, they might say, you know, I'm I'm truly liberated, I'm truly living it up, from the standpoint of the word of God, that state, to be in such a state, is to be in fact under the judgment of God. I gave you an illustration, I think it was last week, how that damage can be done to our bodies even while we're enjoying ourselves. You take that hamburger, that greasy, dirty hamburger. You put the cheese, you put the beef. You eat that, you consume that, you follow that up with a sundae, nice ice cream mixture of all kinds of goodies. You put that with a bar or two of chocolate, in fact, a whole chocolate, a whole whole, um, packet of chocolate. You do that for six months. You do that, if you're lucky, for a year. And what is happening is this, all the while that that person is enjoying life, so to speak, that person really is suffering ill health. The point, my friends, we need to understand this morning, we say that in permitting them to their sinful ways, he's in fact punishing them. He's in fact judging them. For you see, lifting his restraining hand from them, he in effect abandons them. What he's in fact doing is allowing them to wallow in their own corruption to the point where it degrades them, denuding them of their dignity such that they lose the ability to even blush, to feel ashamed, to feel convicted of their sins. Uh, Pause with me for a moment. Um, There's a passage, I think it's Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says, where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, where there's no word of God, the people run wild. They run rampant. And it's interesting that the, the word that is used there um, for cast off restraint or perish is, can also be translated in the Hebrew as naked. Naked. Where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint, they run wild, they run naked. How true the word of God. We saw that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Right at the White House, people unashamedly, brazenly parading their bodies in the name of so called gay pride. And we need to understand that when he lifts his hands of wrath from them, he's actually abandoning them. My friends, when God gives up a person or society to unrestrained indulgence in sin, to them it may appear thrilling, but in reality it's scary. It's scary. For in so doing, he removes his hand of grace, he removes his hand of protection from them, such that they lose, in the words of one man, their sense of responsibility, their sense of rationality and restraint, such that they descend to the animal level, becoming beastly, as it were. You know, all God has to do is to simply lift his restraining hand, and what happened? What happens? people will go wild, they, people will go crazy to their own destruction. They'll plunge deeper and deeper into degradation and ultimate destruction when the hand, the restraining hand of God, is removed from their lives. Again, it is scary when God gives people over to their sinful ways because such abandonment, listen, such abandonment signals the fact that his patience, his long-suffering, is near-ending, or has come to an end for such people. In which case, that individual, that society, is marked out for eternal damnation. That's what makes it so scary. Now, in verses 24 through 32, Paul cites some of the ugliest features of an individual or culture that rejects and hates God. And heading the list is homosexuality. Homosexuality. This is a hot potato topic in our time. Politically speaking, we're not supposed to talk about it. Closeted in the past, but now cast into law here in the U.S. and other countries. Homosexuality has come to be regarded by many today as a normal, alternative lifestyle. Celebrities, corporations, governments, the media... The world of entertainment, of sports, and the list goes on, are very much in on defending and promoting the homosexual lifestyle. In fact, our education system, which will be teaching our children their ABCs, their 1, 2, 3, are in on it. Our military are in on it. And those who are opposed to the agenda are deemed bigoted and hateful, and even branded as domestic terrorists. That's where we are with this matter today. Those who refuse to affirm such lifestyle are pressured with lawsuits and other forms of retaliation. So we have what is called sensitivity training. We have what is called DEI for companies, ESG. DEI is diversity, equity, inclusion, and of course ESG, environmental, social governance, and there's a credit score for businesses. That's why businesses are hot in on the issue. Ministers of the gospel are dancing around the subject or are soft peddling the subject in the name of political correctness. Now, If that isn't bad enough, then what's worse is that children from the tenderest of age are being exposed to some of the most unimaginable perversions. Grooming, as it is called. The administering of puberty blockers. Exposure to drag queen events. Indeed, all kinds of manipulation, lewdness, perversity are being pushed on our children by our government. I have said... And others have said it, and I do believe it. We are here talking now, and people are being politically correct and trying. It's not cool to talk about the subject because you're going to cause offense. And by the way, we don't want to cause needless offense. But here's the point the moment we touch on the subject, it's going to cause offense. Regardless of what I say this morning, regardless of how I say it, it's going to be offensive to some who listen. And, you know, that's not my intent in any way. But I've said to different ones, years ago, say 20, 30 years ago, it would have been a shocker to imagine where we are today. And I'm suggesting that there are other things coming that is, right now we are shocked by it, it's going to be tomorrow's norm. Have you ever heard about MAP? And I'm not going to take time on that this morning because that's not really my intent to go into all of these things, but I'm just showing us where we are today. And sensitivities around the subject are very, very tense and, you know, as I said, not supposed to talk about it. But it's in our text this morning. We don't go about preaching on subjects just for the sake of preaching on it. It's only because it's in our text this morning. Now, in light of popular labeling of any kind of preaching on the subject of homosexuality as hate speech, let me say it clearly this morning by way of clarification that as a church, we are not hateful toward anyone. In fact, I've said publicly, and I will say that this morning, just in case I never said it publicly, but I've said it elsewhere. If persons were to come into our church, and we know them to be of certain persuasion, let's say along the homosexual lines, we would not, we would not show them any kind of hatred, We would have them in our service. We would not put them out of the service. We have lunch period. They would be welcome to come to our lunch period. But here's the point. The only thing is that for them to be a part of the assembly in terms of participating in the life of the church, the ministry of the church, they would have to be converted, and they would have to be changed from that life. That's the only thing we say. The fact is the things we say, the positions we hold on the matter of same-sex activity are based on the Bible, the Word of God. We don't have personal, private opinions on the matter. Our position, all that's based on the Bible, the infallible Word of God, and we are saying that God is the one who dictates right and wrong. God is the one who sets the agenda for what is forbidden and for what is acceptable. So when it comes to moral and spiritual issues, the decisions we make, the lifestyle we lead, we embrace, is not left to our feelings, it's not left to our sentiments, it's not left to our fancies, it's all based on what the Bible says, and that is that word from which we speak, the Bible. So I want to talk this morning a bit, and this is not the only point in the sermon this morning, the real truth of homosexuality. We want to consider from our text this morning how God evaluates homosexuality. What's his mind on the matter? What does he say about it in his word? And the first thing I draw your attention to is found in verse 24, the B part, which is this. According to the word of God, homosexuality is defiling. It is defiling. Look at verse 24b. The Bible says there, God gave them up in the loss of their hearts to what? Impurity. I'm not making this up. These are not my ideas. God says in his word that homosexuality is impurity. It is uncleanness. And to begin with, notice from these words, notice very carefully from verse 24b that homosexuality derives from the heart. It derives from the heart. It derives from the sinful heart. People were not born that way. There's nothing that scientifically establishes beyond a shadow of a doubt that people were born that way. The Word of God teaches that it proceeds from the heart of man, which is a sinful heart, and God describes it as impurity. The Word speaks of that which is filthy, of that which is dirty, And what's in view here is the moral corruption that homosexuality presents. So that's the first point. Homosexuality, what does God think of it? First of all, it is defiling. It is impurity. Second, according to the word of God, homosexuality is degrading. It is degrading. Verse 24c. Look at verse 24c. Verse 24c speaks of it as the dishonoring of the body, the dishonoring of the body. And the idea here is that as a shameful, degrading act or practice, homosexuality is an indignity to the body. Well, why would we say that? Why would the word of God describe it as a dishonorable act? Well, you see, when God created the human body, he used it, he created it for his glory. That's what First Corinthians six nineteen and 20 tells us. He says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, glorify God in your body. Homosexuality brings about shame just such as God never intended for the human body. And by the way, you notice when, notice from Genesis 3, 7, when humankind began to be ashamed of the body was when they fell into sin. God never intended the body. The Bible says they were both naked and were not ashamed. But what happens, sin brings shame, and sin is further heightened by the sin of homosexuality, which the Word of God describes as dishonorable. That is why, in Judges chapter 19, verses 22 and 23, and this is one of the scriptures to note, that while a horse was entertaining some visitors... And some of the men of the city, the men of Gibeah, surrounded the house, clamoring on the door, beating on the door, clamoring to have his male guests. The host begged them not to commit. How did he describe it? Such disgraceful act. And you'll notice here in our text, verse 26, verse 26 of our text, that Paul places a sin in question under the category of dishonorable passion. This honorable passion, in verse 27, he characterizes it as committing shameless acts. According to the word of God, then, homosexuality, number one, is defiling. It is degrading. But not only that, thirdly, according to the word of God, homosexuality is deviant. It is deviant. That is to say, it deviates from the clear will of God. Homosexuality represents a departure from God's law which inheres in creation as such. It is a fundamental rejection, distortion, and perversion of God's creational purpose as set forth in Genesis 2 and verse 24 where the word of God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me say this. Two of the same kind is not what he's talking about here. And regardless of what men might say, regardless of what what they might try to engineer the body, let me tell you, it's not going to happen. Why? Here's the truth. You had rather built a pipeline here from the U.S. into the Indian Ocean or a bridge before that happens. It's not going to happen. Note verses 26b, 27, which describes the abnormality, the abnormality of such arrangement. Verses 26, 27, for their women exchange, here's what he says, that means the word exchange suggests what? They're turning it into something that it was not. He says their women exchange natural relations for those that are, here it comes, contrary to nature, contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations. They gave it up, they surrendered it, that's what the word of God says, with women and were consumed with passion one for another, men committing shameless acts with men. Indeed, what is clear from these words is that God's purpose for sexual relations has in view male and female genders. That is to say, a biological male, a biological female as God designed them from birth. So that same gender relations in the name of physical intimacy is therefore deemed by the word of God to be unnatural, an abandonment of natural relations, and thus shameful. That is why in referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the surrounding cities. Here's how Jude puts it. The apostle Jude puts it in Jude verse 7. Jude 7 states that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. In fact, the word is, is sometimes translated. You'll see it in the King James Version. They went after strange flesh. Unnatural And I like what Ed Welch says in consequence of this, the Christian counselor Ed Welch, he says this, homosexual, in view of all of this, he says, homosexual acts and homosexual desire by either male or female are a violation of God's creation ordinance and are thus sinful. He says, as such, a church must warn and rebuke those who call themselves Christians, but persist in homosexual practice, and the church must actively teach that homosexual affection is sinful. It can never suggest that there is a morally neutral, constitutional, homosexual Orientation. The church needs to champion the word of God, call a spade a spade, call it to what it is, and to say it is a sin for which God will bring judgment on those who practice it. Fourthly, we gather from our text that according to the word of God, homosexuality is damaging. That such practice has damaging consequences is evident from the last clause of verse 27. The last clause of verse 27 reads as follows. He says, They received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is he talking about? Suggested by these words is that there are certain ills, certain harmful effects, which are intrinsic To this sin, we talk about emotional harm, feelings of guilt. Much has been spoken and written on the emotional trauma caused by life of homosexuality. Talk about what is referred to today as gender dysphoria. I pulled off the internet, gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria? And here's how it is defined. It says, gender dysphoria occurs when there is a conflict between the sex you were assigned at birth and the gender with which you identify. This can create significant distress and can make you feel uncomfortable in your body. People with gender dysphoria may want to change the way that they express their gender. That's how we get transgenderism. And what they're not telling you, what the authorities, what the proponents are not telling you is that many of these people having, to use the word that that is commonly used, transitioned, having transitioned, they get to a place where they realize it's not for me, it is not for me, it it, it just doesn't suit me. And what happens, many of them are suicidal or children What harm is being done to our children? And you know something? There are states who are pushing right now to to, to have puberty blockers. And if the parent dare intervene, in fact, the parents don't have to know. And if the parent dare to intervene, interfere, as they would say, they can be prosecuted. That child could be taken from them. The mutilation of the body, the harm that is being done, the physical harm, the emotional harm, the psychological harm. And not to mention the severe physical consequences that accompany such lifestyle. Talk about diseases, 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 diseases. That's what Paul means when he says, one of the things that Paul means when he says, receiving in themselves the error of their ways which was fitting. Diseases which exact a heavy toll on the body and even what? Death. And of course, most serious of all is the spiritual harm, the spiritual harm that results from engaging in such practice. You say, what are you talking about, Patrick? What do you mean by the spiritual harm? Well, here's the spiritual harm, First Corinthians 6, 9. Homosexuality, we see there is listed as one of the many sins that shut people out of the kingdom of God. Because here's what the Apostle Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says this, do not be deceived. And there are several times in the New Testament where when Paul is discussing sexual sins, he says, do not be deceived. Why is that so critical, especially in our time? Because many are deceived. Many are deceived into thinking that they can maintain the name Christian while practicing such lifestyle. Based on the teaching of the word of God, homosexuality is defiling, it is degrading, it is deviant, it is damaging. Fifthly, according to the word of God, it is disapproved. It is disapproved. It's expressly forbidden by the word of God. Look at the B part of verse 28. Paul says there that such deed represents, quote, What ought not to be done? What ought not to be done? Scripture disapproves it. Scripture expressly forbids it. Such deed ought not to be done. How do we know that? Because Leviticus 18.22 says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. These are stark, sobering truths regarding the sin of same-sex involvement. So point number one, as we have seen this morning, one of the ugly manifestations of a life that rejects God, that a life that turns its back on God is a life that is given over to the base practice of God. Homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin, even though it might be legislated, even though it might be popular, even though it might gain, quote-unquote, some respectability in the eyes of God, it is an abomination for which God will bring judgment on those who practice such things. Now, having dealt at length with the sin of homosexuality as one feature of those who reject and suppress the knowledge of God, Paul then continues in verses 29 through 32, with other forms of unrighteousness and ungodliness that characterize those who dismiss God from their lives. And the point we must not miss in verses 29 through 32 is the sobering truth that the sins listed in these verses all come from the, listen, they all come from the very same heart from which homosexuality originates. It's important we recognize that. And why is it important that we recognize that? Because, you see, one can, in self-righteous pride, denounce the sin of homosexuality while clinging to other sins which, not, which similarly incur the wrath and judgment of God. Here in verses 29 through 32, we have at least 23, 23 other expressions of sin to which you and I can be hypocritically blinded. And the list could be categorized under the broad headings, three broad headings we could put these under. We could put them under sinful deeds, sinful speech, and sinful attitude. So in the next hour or so, I want to go through each of these, look at these 23 sins that are cited. Ready? No, (laughs) not going to do that. And you don't want me to come back next week, right? And continue for four weeks talking about various sins, right? You don't want me to do that. So here's what we're going to do with this list. I said to you, there are three categories under which they can be placed. Sinful deeds, sinful speech, and sinful attitudes. What we're going to do with this list is to pick out certain sins. Certain sins which many a Christian in fact, we could say the average Christian, perhaps, tends to overlook, and in a self-righteous manner, if not, if not careful by the grace of God, we can become self-righteous, become hypocritical, and just point to the one sin of homosexuality. So we're going to go through some of them. How about the first one? Let's pick out verse, verse 29. Malice. Many a person would never dare... Imagine, even imagine getting involved in any kind of sexual sin, any kind of sexual aberration. But yet they have no problem, malice. Feelings of ill will, feelings of bitterness, feelings of resentment toward others. And what the word of God is saying, and, and what I would ask you to do is look at Galatians 5:22 and 20, 22 to 24. You don't have to turn to it now, but write down that scripture. Because when Paul comes to talk about the the sins of the flesh, he's going to list what we would categorize as sins of the Spirit. Sins of the Spirit, such as anger, wrath, And he talk about dissensions. And Paul is going to say, of which things I warned you, even as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, you and I might not be involved in certain kinds of sin, but here's the point. If we are given to malice, to feelings of ill will, then according to the word of God, If we persist in that kind of lifestyle, in fact, the Apostle John will say it in 1 John, the one who is not loving his brother is a murderer. He has no eternal life abiding in him. The question this morning is, what is the state of our hearts before God? Are we harboring any kind of bitterness, any kind of malice in our hearts? That is a horrible sin. And let me say this, the best of us, if not for the grace of God, falls into this. Why? Because people hurt us. And what is our natural response? We're given to malicious feelings. We withhold our speech. It's wrong. Envy. Jealousy. What is envy? Envy is jealousy accompanied by resentment toward others. That's a sin of the spirit. Envy accompanied by resentment toward others for what they have or for what they have achieved. There are people who cannot stand seeing others thrive, seeing others success. If we have hearts that are envious of others, that are jealous of others, then we have bitter, ungodly hearts. Strife, strife. Speaks of that kind of spirit and relationship with others that's constantly given to contention. Some people, it seems, can never get along with almost everyone. There are people who are typically hard to get along with. They are always in some heated argument with others. Something is wrong with everybody. That's the spirit of dissension. The word of God is saying that that is a manifestation of the flesh. And he says this, that continued practice of such thing will shut one out of the kingdom of God. Maliciousness. That evil negative disposition that tends to put the worst in on everything and on others. That's always bent on assigning the worst motive to others. Sinful. Gossips. The Greek word is phipsuristes. Do you notice something about even the word, the sound of the word? Phipsuristes. Gossip. Those who defame others with their words... The word has to do with spreading news, whether true or untrue, about others out of ill will or harm, or from sheer insensitivity and carelessness. When we're talking about somebody and it's not positive, and we're just chatting about them, we have to watch that. Many times we can fall into that. That is sinful according to the word of God. Slanderers, Verse 30, those who spread false, unverified statements that hurt another person's reputation. Slanderers. In fact, the word that is used for slander is the word from which we derive the word for devil. That's what Satan does. Insolent. That has to do with desiring and acting to bring harm to others. A person who is just coarse. Sometimes we use the word nasty. And it seems that they would take pride in the, in the fact that they, they, they just tell you their mind. They just tell you, up for, I'm not afraid to tell you my mind. I am afraid, I know. I'm not afraid to tell you the truth. And they are hurtful, insensitive to the feelings of others. Haughty, boastful. Speaks of those who are prideful and arrogant. Those who would say, we'd would say, are full of themselves. They talk about themselves. They talk about their possessions. They talk about their achievements without reference to God or regard for God. Proud and arrogant. Boastful. You know, we look at that and we might say, you know, that's his personality. He's just a boastful person. But you know something? The Word of God is saying here that if you have a lifestyle of pride, if you and I have lifestyles of pride and arrogance, especially if we turn the nose up at others, that's sinful. That's sinful. And that incurs the judgment of God. How about this one? Disobedient to parents. Wow, he throws that one in there. He throws that one in there. Let me say this, young people, and you're probably listening online anywhere, perhaps in the future, the Word of God takes very seriously this matter of obeying one's parents, honoring one's parents. And you notice in this list, in this dirty laundry list, Paul, the Word of God, throws disobedience to parents along the, alongside what homosexuality, all of these things. He says they were filled with all wickedness, etc., etc., envy, Mal. He throws disobedience to parents. Why? Because God takes seriously this matter of disobedience to parents. Disobedience to parents. Disobedience to parents is a horrible sin. Why? Because it represents rebellion against divinely constituted authority. Your parents are placed over you by God's order. Disobedience to parents manifests a heart that is in rebellion against God because one of the features of of rebellion against God is the desire to have one's own way. The Bible clearly commands children to obey their parents. And disobedience to this command incurs the wrath and judgment of God. Verse 31, faithless. And the word here speaks of those who do not keep their promises. Covenant breakers, as the King James Version put it. These are people who go back on their word. They give you a six for a nine. They give you a six, but they don't really mean six. They're effectively liars, people who can't be trusted. And the word of God warns in Revelation 21 and verse 8 that among the people who will have their part in the lake of fire and brimstone who will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity, notice what he says, they are all liars. Somebody might say, well, I just tell a little white lie. But the word of God says all liars. Not keeping our promises, making a commitment, and knowing in ourselves that we don't intend to keep it is... A sin in the eyes of God. And then look finally at verse 32. The ultimate death knell of a heart that rejects God. Verse 32. We see in verse 32 what we would call the deadening of the conscience. The deadening of the conscience. Look at what he says. After he lists all the various sins, beginning with homosexuality, coming all the way down, this laundry list, this dirty laundry list, he says this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. What this verse tells us, beloved, is this, that people have an innate intuitive knowledge of what's right and what's wrong, that they are not without an awareness of the fact that God will hold them accountable in judgment for their evil deeds, and what this truth tells us is that regardless of how men might try to rationalize their sins, regardless of how men might even legislate their sins, however much they might legalize their sins, deep within their conscience, they know that what they're doing is wrong. That's what God says. And what aggravates their sin, their rebellion against God, is that while knowing the penalty of their evil deeds, that God's judgment is against such who participate in such deeds, the Bible says they not only do so themselves, but they give complicit approval to those who do likewise. They give hearty consenting approval. They give hearty consenting applaud to those who practice those things. In no way does the thought of judgment scare them. They know it. But yet they do it. That is a sign of the wrath of God. Well, let's close with some good news. Good news. We have seen again this week the far-reaching effect of a heart and life that rejects God. The distortion of truth inevitably results in a twisted, perverted lifestyle. Shunning and dismissing the truth of God results not only in the mind becoming deluded, darkened, and depraved, but it results in the defilement of the body, the degradation of the body. This is in the distortion of the affections and ultimately the deadening of the conscience. And we learn that when God is rejected, a spiritual vacuum is necessarily in place, and that must be filled. And if it's not God, it has to be something else. Notice what Paul says in verses 29 through 32. He says, they were filled with this, that, and the other. They were filled with this, that, and the other. Wickedness, unrighteousness, ungodliness fills that vacuum. But the wonderful truth of the gospel, my friends, is that despite the ugliness, despite the horror of man's sins... There's the pardoning mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. If all we have to say this morning is the bad news of man's lost sinful condition is rebellion against God... That is bad news. If all that we say this morning concerns the judgment of God, that is bad news. But here's the wonderful news. The wonderful news of the gospel, my friends, is this, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And the wonderful truth, once again, is this, that if any person, regardless of his or her sins, would come to God in true repentance, would come to God in true humility and faith in the Lord Jesus, that person would be cleansed, that person would be washed, that person would be sanctified, that person would be saved by the grace of God. I want you to hear this, my friends. You know this very well, but it bears repeating that God is not in the business of condemning people to hell. That's not what he's about. God is in the business of saving, redeeming, and transforming the lies, broken lives, sinful lies, ungodly lies, for his glory, for his grace, and for our good. For the scripture says, Romans 10, 11 through 13, and with this we close, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wonderful, isn't it? And you can know that reality today if you would only trust him.